I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin here. Before we launch our next season of Here's the Thing at iHeartRadio in January, I thought I'd play some of my favorite shows from the archives. Next up is my interview with musician David Crosby. Crosby is a founding member of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and in adding the why that is Neil Young, created one of the greatest quartets in music history. Here's my interview with the late David Crosby. And I feel like I've been here before. S.N. and sometimes Y. Some combination of David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash played together for 50 years until 2016. But always Crosby. He's the constant in some of the greatest songs of the 20th century. His composition, harmonizing, and non-traditional guitar tunings helped create the sound of the 60s and 70s. It's a sound he honed with his first big act, The Birds, turning counterculture anthems like Dylan's Tambourine Man into mainstream hits. David Crosby is famous, too, for his addiction to cocaine and heroin in the 1980s. It almost killed him. But even in his darkest moments, Crosby always had people pulling him up, even some of the biggest stars of the era. All right, I'm in the middle of my lowest point of being a complete wastrel on hard drugs, right? It's a bitch. My phone rings. Crosby? Yeah, who's this? 
It's Townsend. I said, bullshit. He says, no, it's Townsend. Listen, get off that stuff. <laughs> get the f- off that stuff. I have to watch the four-letter words, right? No, you, you can let it rip here. It's, uh, oh, really? We're okay. podcasting. He, and so he says, you know, you fucking get your shit fucking together. You're, you're fucking up. Lad, quit that shit. In my face, really seriously. I was like, who the fuck gave my number? I, I still haven't deciphered how this all happened. Well, what made him think it would work? Well, it made him think it would work because right, right. everybody else had failed. Somebody put him up to it. I'm not sure who. Did it was. work? No. No. What worked was they sent me to prison in Texas for a year. Right. That worked. So, so that's what that was a turning point for you. Yeah, it got me sober. And um, you were and you were largely, or you were completely sober since then. I was completely sober for fourteen and a half years. Uh, what happened? You went to prison. What year? Uh, Eighty four. And you were how old? Forties. Yeah. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. I was born in forty one, so right. I'm, I'm so seventy six now. Right. Yeah. And I was deeply addicted. And the only I'd already tried uh, in, you know, rehab places, uh, I think four or five times and failed. Uh, so the prison did it. You know, junk and free base, that, that's a prison you carry around with you. You don't get to get out. Prison, you get to get out. And I, I don't regret it a bit. How were you treated by the inmate population when you were in prison? Were they kind to you? Did they uh, dig you and admire you? A full range. Went all the way from, uh, I like your music, man, to, uh, hey, rock star, how you doing now? Bet you wish you had some drugs, don't you? Yeah. Hey, Vern, look over here. Rock star's throwing up again. Some bitch. Oh. It was Texas. Yeah. Wasn't, and they didn't give me an aspirin. They didn't even have AA meetings in the prisons back then. Nothing. You had no help at all. They so just, you crawled out of there. <laughs> it was bitter. You crawled out of there. It was bitter. When you get but, out of, but I woke up. When you get out of prison, what do you do? Well, like, like who comes around you? Do people come to you and say, let's get back to work? Or what's yeah. life like? As soon as I woke up, I started writing again. I'm a hugely lucky human being, man. I have a raison d'etre. Here's a, 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 a fact about writing and creating and, and drugs. The more drugs I did, the less I wrote. And you could plot the two curves. And they crossed at a certain point. You know, and I just kept the more drugs I did until I stopped writing. And then about two years went by, and then I woke up in prison, remembered who I was, and started writing again. And since then, it's been a steady increase and a steady increase in quality. So I can only draw one conclusion. Now, this is going to sound strange, but you come from a nice family. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we were comfortable, <clears throat> and I got to go to good schools. I had a rich yeah. uncle. My dad was a cinematographer, and a very good one. Not a warm and fuzzy guy, but technically... Excellent. So, yeah, I thought I wanted to be an actor. You know what's really funny, man? Most of the actors I know want to be musicians, and all the musicians I know want to be actors. Right, because no matter what you're doing, you can be doing anything, and music can be in your life, and therefore music will always have a more powerful place in the lives of people than any film or TV, any. Debatable, but I think you got a, a lot of evidence on your side there. Music, the way I look at it, music... All art can be and usually is a lifting force. Just as war drags humanity down and makes, brings out the very worst in us, so music and art lift. They're a lifting force. They make things better. And so I, I kind of think, I 
I, I kind of think I'm probably the luckiest guy in the world. I think I've got probably one of the best jobs. I, I, I tried acting. I'm not really good at it. You know. I don't um, know why you'd want to act. If I could do what you do, you could never. You couldn't get me off stage with a gun. I just would play music. If well, I could do what you do, it's fine. When I went to go see the Beatles, love. I go to Vegas to go to see the Cirque du Soleil, the Beatles, love. And what hits you in the beginning, other than the really kind of groovy meshing of the songs and the kind of overdubbing they did, was the idea of that all of them were born during the war. They were all war babies in London. They were. And you talk and talks and the, and the opening of the show kind of tips how that affected them and how it affected their lives and how they viewed uh, their country and so forth. You're a war baby. You were born during the war. Forty-one. Right. What was life like when you were a kid? I remember my dad. I remember watching my dad at, at a distance. At, you know where Burbank Airport is? Yes. It used to be Douglas Field. I remember my dad climbing into the belly of a B-24 and flying away to the war. I remember watching him. He went. Oh, yeah. He was they, – they commissioned him directly into the, what was then the Army Air Corps because right. he had this no – he Air was Force already a, a, an Academy Award winning, you know, <laughs> cinematographer. cinematographer. So they put him right in the Air Corps and put him in this B-24 that didn't – that was a camera plane. That's all it was. And he went all over the world. He went every – he, he had every theater ribbon there was. Uh, he was gone for how long? Five years. Well, because it wasn't a bombing thing. You know, he had to follow the bombers, but he wasn't bombing, so he didn't get 35 and out. He, he, he kept going. Yeah. Five years. Every major theater of the war. And, uh, and when he came back, what was he like? He would never talk about it. So life at home when you were a child is with your mother? Yeah, at first, yeah. And then both of them. But my dad just wasn't a real homebody, family guy. He was off working? Yeah. And you go to boarding school? I did, yeah, Kate. What was that like? Uh, what were you like? <laughs> <laughs> were you always mischievous? Always. And it got me in a shitload of trouble. Why do you think that is? Why? I don't know, but it's definitely true. I got thrown out of almost every school I was ever in, including Kate. What was music in your life then? Music came early and well. Uh, my mom sang in choirs. My dad liked music. He could play a mandolin. My brother played guitar. We used to. Here's an interesting thing. When when we were growing up in the 50s, when TV started to really happen, we didn't have a TV. So we sang folk songs out of the Fireside Book of Folk Songs. And that was where it started. Did anybody tell you then you could sing? Did they say you're a good singer? They did notice that I was singing harmony when I was six. And they went, huh? What's the first instrument you played? Guitar. My brother turned me on to guitar. When you were how old? I guess maybe 10. What's the best time you think to teach? My son is two and a half years old. He's going to be three in June. He's obsessed with simulating playing the guitar. He actually has a band with my wife. He calls her Trista, <laughs> and he's Mr. Pants. Mr. Pants. He'll turn to my wife, literally, I've got it on video. He'll turn to my wife and go, Trista, what are we going to play now? Oh, he's two and a half. Don't let him be a musician. We want him to no, be. No, it's a terrible idea. He'll never have a job. Actually, let him. Do you think that if you didn't, but when you say that, do you think if you hadn't made it as big as you made it, you wouldn't have stuck with it, or you would have stayed with it just because you loved it? I would have because I love it. Right. I love it so much, Alec, I can't tell you. I love singing. I'm good at it, but that's not really it. It's There's a joy to singing in and of itself. And it's it's an elevating thing. It's, it's 
totally freaking wonderful. It's very tough for me now, man, because I'm really old and getting on the road. It's exhausting. Is, yeah, well, it beats the crap out of me, yeah, because you never get more than four hours sleep in a row, and then in the middle of that, you hit an expansion joint, and bang, you're awake oh. again. And, you know, and you're eating terrible food in restaurants. When when did you, when you left home, you, you didn't go to college? No, I went one year, and... You went to? Uh, City College in Santa right. Barbara, which is now, oddly enough, the, the highest-rated city college in the country. It was interesting and good, and I, I had one really good teacher who hooked me up about some really interesting things about semantics and language and how— No, you weren't studying music then? No, I never Were you did. in a band then? No, not yet. I was, I was busing tables at the local coffee house because it, uh, as a busboy, they would let me sing harmony with the guy who was being paid to sing. And what was the first band you were in? Les Baxter's Balladeers. Les Baxter, you know, band leader guy. He had seen the uh, Christy Minstrels, which uh, uh, that guy who Sparks or whatever his name was, he had he, I think he had three of them out there, bands like that, all named the same. You know, just it was a commercial operation. It was like, really lame, but it was put food on the table. My brother and I were in that, and then I ran into Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark and where at Troubadour. In L.A.? Yeah, bar at the Troubadour. Right. And uh, they were singing, and it was good. And the songs were, you know, Gene was a pretty good writer. And uh, So when those two have a—they had an act called— uh, They didn't have an act. They were just playing. They were just playing. In the bar. You know, Roger had been a musician for a while. Right. And successful and played with other bands, Lime Ladders, Chad Mitchell Trio, a bunch of different people. So he knew what he was doing. And he knew that Gene was talented and, and that this stuff had value because it sounded a lot like Beatles songs. And uh, so I started singing harmony to him. They said, what's your name? And uh, that worked out really well. It was a, a good band, simple, good. Roger was extremely good at, at taking Bob Dylan's songs and turning them into pop records. And you covered Tambourine Man? Yeah, that was our first hit. Well, what did you learn about bands in your first band? What was that experience like? I learned that that I had a lot to learn. I was just a young punk, and I really had no idea how to actually work with people and and a- accomplish the aim that I wanted to. I had an experience early on when I was young. My mom took me to see a symphony orchestra in a park, free show, there in L.A. And they tuned up and they got ready, and then they started the piece, and it was this huge, beautiful wave that hit me. I didn't know anything was like that. You know, a symphony orchestra, hugely powerful thing. Mm. And it freaked me out. And the thing I, I, I realized, even as a kid, the power came from they were all doing it together. I can't believe you just said that. It's the truth. And it really and it penetrated. So I've always wanted to be in a band. Yeah. Always. I, I love cooperative effort. Competitive effort winds up at war. Cooperative effort winds up at a symphony. I'm, I'm, I'm watching Tom Petty's band play at a benefit, and a friend was with me. I turned to him and I said, do you see what I'm seeing? My friend said, what? And I said, they're all doing the same thing at the same time. Bingo. I said, they're all in service to and feeding. You know, in my business, not everybody's doing the same thing. They're kind of doing their own thing, kind of jerking off in the no. corner there. You know, Petty's I mean? band was doing the same thing. Yeah, it was really, really very, very cool. Do you find in a band, does somebody always need to be in charge? Does somebody need to be the boss? It can go both ways. In The Birds, Roger was definitely the leader of the band. And that worked? Well, yeah, he knew a lot more than we did. Right. And he's also an extremely talented guy and a good singer. 
And uh, so it, it wouldn't, you know, I challenged it at every turn, but he was the leader of the, of the band. Uh, CSNY, none of us was willing to admit the, the, anybody else was the leader. We, it, it was and probably still is one of the most competitive situations in the history. Uh, and uh, Why? Egos. Really, just that. Simple. In, in, in spite of all the incredible success you've had, I mean, who's when you think of people, when you think of men harmonizing in a group, the first people that come to mind are the three of you. Why do you think that that didn't bring them any comfort? I don't think that's what they went in for. And I don't think they realized exactly how good it was. We did really like each other when we started. And we were thrilled, you know, by each other's songs. So you leave the birds and, 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 and Stills leaves Buffalo Springfield uh-huh. and they bring you with them? Like well, he, Springfield sort of fell apart. Neil right, left, right. which is kind of his M.O. <laughs> right. And uh, Stephen was very appealing guitar player and singer. I mean, it's really good. Yeah. Remember how well he played acoustic guitar back then? Beautiful. Pretty stunning. And so I started hanging out with him. And then Cass uh, introduced me to Graham. But when Nash leaves the Hollies, the Hollies are doing very well. Aren't yeah. they very successful? Yeah. I Why st- does he leave the Hollies? I stole him. You did? I went how, to, how did I went that to, work? I went to London and I told him he should quit. And you t- how did you do that? He should quit. Why? Because he could join us. He was at a very crux point with the Hollies. They wanted to do an album of Dylan covers. Now, there are bands that should do Dylan covers, and there are bands that should not do Dylan covers. <laughs> and that was one of the bands that should not do Dylan covers. And they were ignoring his songs. He had already written Lady of the Island, and they didn't get it. The beautiful song. He'd already written right between the eyes. They didn't get it. He, he was already outgrowing them. So I walked in. I said, hmm, this is pretty ordinary. And I was funnier than they were, and I, was, I knew more than they did. And I did it on purpose, and they'll probably never forgive me. But it made a great sound. We, the three of us, when we heard each other saying, it was, it was spectacular. But bands get together, and you're in love with each other, and it's all wonderful, and it's exciting. And then... It devolves. And 40 years later, it's turn on the smoke machine and play your heads. And you don't even like each other. You don't ride the same bus. You do not hang out. And you are competing with the other guys. So it's easier to do the touring and get on stage and get that on and get that over with than it is to be – you don't go into a studio anymore because that's more intimate. That died quicker, yeah. The money's still good on the road in a band like that, you know. Uh, that you you want to stay there. It means yeah. big crowds, big places, big deal. You get you. Yeah. But it got to the point where it's no fun. Is it about when it starts to crack? When it starts to shift? Is it because of songwriting? No one's getting. Oh, that too. Uh, no one wants to sing my songs. I want my songs on that album. Yeah, there's that. Who's the decider? Did you guys acquiesce to producers? No, we uh, we always produced our records, and uh, and our we had what we call the reality rule. You come into the room, and we'd sit down by our, just us, nobody else, and uh, sing each other a song. And they either liked it or they didn't. And uh, if they liked it, you know, then we'd start figuring out how to sing it. And these are hugely talented guys, man. They, they came with a lot of stuff. So before it was the four of you, the three of you was basically pretty good. Yeah, it was okay, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, Neil's nickname is Sometimes. It's CSN, sometimes Y. Right, right, right. right <laughs> you know, right. Uh, and when it would be CSNY, it was a lot bigger. That you got to know that. That's what, the reason the CSNY is always Neil's decision, 
is because if there's 20,000 people in the stadium, Neil put 10 of them there. That's the truth. Right. And so he's he's the one that's, that's said that it's done. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And I don't think he needs to do CSMI. I don't think he'll ever see it again. When you say he's sometimes and he comes and goes, is that his nature in all things? He just has a tough time committing to anything? No, he's on his own path. And he does not relinquish that ever under any circumstances. And uh, he does not want to be dependent on anybody else and probably doesn't want to split the money. I don't know. I've never asked him. But I I know he—I think, you know, I had to come to this decision. It's a very hard decision, man. This is a very hard time for us. I don't know if you know this, but streaming pretty much destroyed our— earning power. Mm-hmm. It took half, at least half of our earning power away from us because mm-hmm. they, folks, they don't pay us for records anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got that deal past us. And they, it, it's sort of as if you worked your job and they paid you a nickel for every two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's the proportion is drastically tiny. So with Neil gone and CSN still earning, but really frozen in place and really unpleasant. I mean, incidents that I, I will not tell you about, but violently bad. A carefully chosen word. David Crosby is having a renaissance. Three solo albums over the past four years. We hear about his new burst of creativity and why he thinks Stills and Nash are still out there playing the hits when we come back. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. No, I need a piece to be and That's Crosby with Stills and Nash. We've heard about the band's disintegration, but not what made it great. What was the best time? Every time. <laughs> Every time for years at the beginning. Every time we'd go on stage, we would just kill it. We could sing together. Nash is a fantastic harmony singer. He, he absolutely hates my guts. That's not fun to work with. Um, why, why do you think that's, that's the case? I could tell you, but it would be personal stuff. It'd be better. No, the no, the it'd no. be better if he told you. Yeah, because you know, uh, um, he's had he said he said some unfortunate stuff happen in his life. Some of which is his fault. Some of which isn't. Right. Uh, and uh, and he blames me for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he mostly blames me because I shot my mouth off about Neil's girlfriend and pissed off Neil, which mm -hmm. ended CSNY. It's my fault. And it's it was so innocent, you know. I, I'd finished an interview like this, and we'd shut the tape off. And I was walking out, and he said, what do you think of uh, Neil's new girlfriend, man? I said, oh, I think she's a predator. Bam, on the net, immediately. Wow. And Neil says, okay, that's it. No more season one. Oh, wow. And uh, I went on Stern, and, I, and he said, well, how do you feel, man? I said, I, I, I didn't have any right to do that. It was, I, I shot my mouth off, and he's pissed at me. And so I, I want to apologize to him. And tomorrow I want to apologize to her. I'm not really in a position to judge other people. Yeah. I'm the one that wound up in prison. You made a mistake. Her. Yeah. Oh, you know? well, I did. But you know how <coughs> mistakes these days, everybody's just waiting to pounce. You never, you never, you never, uh, you know, there's no forgetting. I mean, everybody knows the story. I guess I was fighting for custody of my daughter and I'd have to go to court and spend $25,000 just to get my kid on the phone. You know, they're going to coach the child how to answer the phone. She was like 11. And um, uh, so I leave this message on my daughter's voicemail screaming at my daughter on the phone. I go, go nuts because I've, I've, I've gone through all these stages. of it. Now, what I did, I had this great therapist say this to me once. He goes, you realize that none of what you suffered, no matter what you felt was unfair, he said, you realize that none of that would have happened if you hadn't left the message. If you hadn't left the message, none of this would have happened. 
regardless of what you think about them leaking it to the press. But the point is, once that gets out there on the internet, if you go online and you read my Twitter feed or you go you see any of my social media, there's not a day goes by, not one, that someone doesn't throw that in my face. They send yeah. me a message with it. They'll show me a YouTube tape well, with a link. To, so there's, there's no forgetting anymore. No, you know? and it's a, the people that we're up against here are, are very, very good at, uh, at assaulting any vulnerability they see in the people who criticize them. And we do criticize them, both you and I do, because they are doing a rotten job mm-hmm. with this country. Uh, but the, his supporters, uh, the level of vitriol against people like you that, that have a conscience and that love this country and that really love the Constitution and really love the idea of a, a, a democracy, which we no longer have, uh, they're very, very hot to assault you. They want that. The level of vitriol is, is indicative. It's gone up. And I think they're getting uncomfortable because he fucks up every day, every day. But you've been political for a long time, haven't you? Always. I mean, I read online where you were doing riffs on stage. I don't know if it was Monterey or where were you you doing riffs about JFK's assassination. I said it was an assassination. I said the Warren report's a lie. Yeah. And it is. It was. It was absolutely not true. Uh, But being an activist is kind of like, you know— I had heroes, man. Seeger was a hero of mine. Joan Baez is a hero of mine. These are people who actually put their lives on the line, you know. Harry Belafonte. He walked from Stoneman to Montgomery, arm in arm. There was rifles in the bushes. Plenty of people wanted to kill him. I did a documentary about music and activism, and he's one of my heroes because he was very brave. I wrote a book about it. That's why we made the documentary. Working on a new book now, a guy named Jeff Benedict. Started out about politics, but I think it's going to be about the whole United States of America and democracy and what happened. What do you think is going to happen? It's fascinating, man. I don't think we know. Look, okay, we didn't protect our democracy well enough. What's going to happen? I really don't know. I'm very encouraged by these kids. Mm-hmm. I was very hugely encouraged. Got to keep them active. Oh, the, don't let that fire die out. It's not gonna. Yeah, and we don't. We we're not in charge of them. They are gonna do that, and they are pissed. You gotta understand, they're being handed a, a world that's in deep danger ecologically, and a broken democracy. And don't think they don't know it. They're pissed. My son is pissed. He's getting handed the short end of the stick, and he knows it. He's too smart not to know it. They're not going to go away. These kids are going to see some change. And all the politicians think, it's always been this way, and it's always going to be this way. We're close to the nozzle. We can get the goodies. We're going to run things. Uh Uh-uh. The Women's March, the women of the United States of America may save the United States of America. We need more of them in Congress. Yeah, maybe Stormy Daniels is going to save the country. Uh, yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting that uh, you saw everybody attack David, David Hogg, Hogg, the kid that was the, the leader of the Florida movement, you know, becomes this lightning rod for all these right-wingers, especially Hannity, uh, who I've always been, you know, just just throttled Hannity whenever I can because he just— He's he disgusting. Because well, he drives me insane because, first of all, he has no talent. None. I mean, as much as I detest— O'Reilly's positions, and as much as I'm sickened by the things that O'Reilly did, at least O'Reilly as a broadcaster had some talent. 
I had a I had a, a showdown with uh, with O'Reilly. Oh, did you? He was using my song "Long Time Gone." And I found out. What do you do? He came out to a show, a CSN show at uh, out on Long Island. What's its name? At that, that place, Jones Beach. Yeah, Jones Beach. He came out there, and he was very. You know how he is. He's a peacock. You know, he's like yeah. very full of himself. Big fan of himself. Hi, Bill, Bill O'Reilly. O'Reilly. Nice to meet you. Yes. And I said, Mr. O'Reilly, stop using my song. And he said, What? I said, I didn't give you permission. If you use my song anymore, I'm going to sue you. He said, why don't you come on my show and talk about it? I said, <laughs> come on my show and talk about I it. I said, what? you bully. Uh, you, right. you just interrupted me three words in. I'm not going to come on your yeah. show. Yeah. You disgust me. And he stopped. But, boy, I don't like him at all. I don't like any of them. Because they don't really even believe what they're ranting about. Yeah. They're ranting because it makes them money. That's how they pay out, you know, multi-million dollar settlements. But but, but handed the attacks this guy and a lot of people, uh, Laura And he's Ingram, a good kid. That's why they attacked him. Well, he's they attack very, him because he's effective. He's they very, him because it's working. He's believable. Man. These people have they, – they assassinate characters of leadership. They, they have a leadership assassination program. Yeah. They, Anybody on the other side who's going to get any traction and get anything done, they try to kill him. They try to kill him. They don't like it. And I'm I'm tiny. I'm not really worth coming after, but they do come after me. I'll give you a perfect example. I shot my mouth off yesterday. Whenever it was his, his hotel got caught mm-hmm. fire, I said, burn, baby, burn. Stupid. Mm-hmm. And then a guy dies. 50 emails. You heartless, yeah. worthless son of a bitch. Yeah. Somebody died and you loved it. I don't fucking love it. Yeah. I, I, I don't want anybody to die. Sometimes we, Duh, I don't want anybody to die. Yeah. 50 like raging, I'm going to kill you, you low, cheesy motherfucker. You, you can't communicate in the media at all the way you thought you could or wanted to. Yeah, you have no, to pick you have your to spots be careful. very carefully. You yeah. have to be careful. The, the, the place I go where I can speak as long as I want to and I'm completely uncensored and I'm welcome and nobody's out to give is Howard Stern. I, whenever I want to talk about something, I want to talk about an issue, if something's bothering me, I go on Howard. It's the best. It's the, these are the nighttime shows. Some of them are my friends. I like them. They have their purpose promotionally. Yeah. Six minutes on the couch and out. They have their function in the, in the promotional world. But Howard is a completely different thing. I have Howard, a real conversation. And he's a kind guy. He, he's a, a really interesting a thing. Guy. You know what happened with Howard? He grew up. He started be out being, you know, hey, I'm going to have strippers on my radio show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, baby. Crazy. Nutso shit. And then he kept encountering stuff and learning stuff, and you watch him, he matured. Eventually they realize Letterman and Howard in their own way, they realize they're enough. Them just sitting there talking to is enough. You don't need any more of this crap. I think Howard learned a lot yeah. and became smarter and became much. He's a serious, a serious guy to talk to now. I, I, I feel the same way you do. I felt completely free to say pretty much anything I, I honestly felt. You say the thing about uh, the fire at Trump's building, but, but don't we all get pushed to the point where, I mean, there's things I almost hit send on Twitter that you wouldn't believe. Right, right in, in in line with what you said about Bernie. Yeah, it was. We get pushed to that point. Yeah, well, the we're, thing, he, they make us mad. Exactly. Look, you love this place. Right. You believed in this democracy right. all your life. You think it's a great idea. Right. We got taught it they're was. They're going to ruin everything. And well, they're ruining it. Yeah. You know, and that's really bad. Uh, and yes, I get pissed. And every once in a while, I make a mistake. Uh, I'm 1989. I made a mistake that uh, maybe there was one in 91 too. You're supposed to smile. It was a joke. Right. Why, why was it a joke? 
Because I make mistakes every day. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, oh, yes. that was, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I get it now. I can, I'm, I'm just so earnest right now. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I'm a little too earnest. Yeah. Uh, uh, I want to ask you about your son. His name is Raymond. James Raymond, yeah. J- James Raymond. And you were, were um, separated. You didn't see him for a while. You got reunited. Yeah. His mom uh, put him up for adoption. And when he was just about to have his first child— his parents said, well, you know, you should know what the genetics are. You should find out who your dad is. So he tracked, and he found it, and he said, nah, no way. Oh, he didn't know? No. How old was he at that point? Uh, probably almost 30. So he didn't know you were his father? No. <laughs> no. He did a wonderful thing, Alec. He, normally, those meetups go very badly. You know that. They, they, somebody brings too much baggage. How come you left me and Mom? We weren't good enough for you? Uh, it... It's, it's usually bitter. Yeah. It's usually a bitter pill. Well, he came and he gave me a clean slate. He gave me a chance to earn my way into his life, which was one of the kindest things anybody's ever done to me. And he and I became very close, and we write extremely well because he's a better musician than I am. Anybody tells you it's not genetic, have him come talk That's to me. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. He's a wonderful musician, much better musician than I am, and a really good writer. We're taking a break. Stay with us. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. You still have your band together, CPR? 
Well, that's, that band has evolved now into the uh, Sky Trails band. Sky Trails band. Okay. So I am in two bands. The Lighthouse band, that's the one I'm working with downtown right now. It's an acoustic band, mostly vocal stuff. And you're here recording. Yeah, we're here recording right now. We're making our second record. My other band, Sky Trails band, that's CPR, me and Jeff Pivar and, and my son James Raymond, and this jazz bass player from Estonia named Mai Egan. Young, really nice, brilliant bass player. And then Michelle Willows again because she's a stunning singer. She's an amazing singer. But, yeah, the, these two bands are the result of me getting out of CSN. And, uh, and it was a very tough decision because streaming was taking away half our money. The other half was live performance with CSN, and I couldn't do it anymore. And so I quit. And are you just as happy, or do you miss? I'm so happy, man. S and N, not at all. Really, these people are much better writers and much better singers than those guys are now. Right. These people still love it. They love making music. They're not doing it for a paycheck. They're doing right. it because they. Do you think the other two are really just doing it for a paycheck? At this point, yeah, yeah. I think that's the only thing they're doing. What are they going to do? Do you think they're going to follow you and form another band and keep going? They're out, you know, they're working. Stills was working with Judy Collins, who's been a friend forever, and uh, and Nash has been out working. Were there people that you wanted to play with? Like, was there a dream of somebody you wanted to play with you didn't get to play with? Mm-hmm. Who who'd you want to play with? Joni. Really? And why didn't you? She was my old lady. I produced her first record. She's arguably the the finest singer-songwriter of our times. I think probably pretty definitely the best writer, even better than Paul or either one of the Pauls or Randy or even better than than James Taylor, who was one of my real heroes in life. And and most people come down to it's her or Bob, and she's so much better musician than Bob is. Bob's a great poet. She's a great poet and a great musician. Wow. Stunning singer, which is all over now because she, she got had a really bad thing happen to her. Uh, Dylan. But I worked with him. What was that like? Was oh, it everything you hoped it would be? Silly, man. Bob is such a, a piece of work, man. I went in, and he says, Hi, how you doing? And, uh, and uh, he kissed my wife's hand. She's never washed it since. Um, uh, and he says, uh, come on, let's go do it. And I said, uh, Bob, I, I haven't heard the song yet. He says, well, come on, because he loves to get you out on the edge. He wants that edge stuff. He wants it. So I said, Bob, you, you got to sing me this song. So he says, okay. He sings me this song. And he says, okay, now let's go do it. So we go in the other room, and he does it completely different. <laughs> He's such a he's really he's a piece of work trust me and I am, I love him and I'm I, I get along great with him because I don't butter his toast you know I I think that's that's comfortable for him people I'd love to work with there's still a bunch man but I think the younger people still have a lot of joy in it you know it's still real exciting for them and that produces a different quality of music unquestionably Two hours. Heard a heart cry. 
when we return some of the truly great questions you all submitted for this legend of rock and roll and a few of the less than great ones. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. She shall be free. As she turns her gaze down the slope to the harbor We have some questions that were uh, posed by people on our Here's the Thing Twitter site. Yeah. We, 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 you know, we went on, on our uh, Twitter page and we asked people, and it really worked like a charm. We were kind of amazed how many people. Are That's we going to bring cool. me the questions? Bring those in here. Is that you, Adam? I want to pick just a couple of these that I really, really liked. One of them is from a woman named Barbara Fisher. And she says, one of my all-time favorite albums of yours is Thousand Roads. Did you have any thoughts of what inspired you to write these songs, especially Hero? Was this a generalization? Or was it a commendation on someone specific that inspired you? I wish it were. Actually, Hero... I'm not really sure what I was talking about. What happened is I, I was working on that set of words, and Phil Collins heard him, and, uh, and he wrote the music. And we—this is the closest I came to ever having a hit, really. Uh, uh, I never have hits because I write the weird shit. I, I'm not really sure what I was talking about. I wish I could give you a clear and concise answer of what I was trying to say, but I'm not sure. Bill— Voranikos, and Bill, if I mangled your name, I apologize. Bill Voranikos, I think this is a funny question. Who was a rival artist or band during the 60s or 70s that you couldn't stand or thought sucked other than Jim Morrison? (laughs) (laughs) Did you think Jim Morrison sucked? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Poser. Really? Poser. You thought he was not a good singer? Not a good singer. Now, Now, why do you, oh my God. I don't think he was a good singer. Now, when you say that, who is a good singer to you? Oh, man. I mean, other than the three of you, who's a good singer? James Taylor. Wow. Brilliant singer. Well, you think it's just more honest, more straightforward? What, 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 what? Much more talented. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, no, Morrison was a poser. You know, anybody that winds up having to wave their dick at the audience, you know, is like they're pretty desperate. He, he was a poser. Trust me. I, 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 that band was no good. They never swung, ever. They didn't have a bass player. He played terrible bass on a keyboard really badly, and it was awful. I don't like them. I never I – mean, there were bands earlier than that that I didn't like, Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, come on. I set the bar pretty high. The people that I liked were Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Cass Elliott and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. Yeah. That's those are your basic box set of the greatest. Those are all my friends, and okay. they're all people that I think yeah. are really talented. No, I didn't like the Doors or like Jim Morris at all. Well, we have a woman here. The question, I'm, 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 I'm motivated by you because you were so blunt about Morrison. I'm so blunt about this question. Her name is Renee Champagne. <laughs> now, that's, that's, a, that's a cool name, Renee Champagne. But the question is a terrible question. She says, 
What is the most memorable moment of your career so far and why? That's a terrible question when you Terrible have question. Yeah. And you get those too, yeah, right? Yeah. What's your Who's favorite your movie? Favorite? And, and yeah. we try to explain to them. And yeah. when you get into the good stuff, it's all apples and oranges. There isn't a best. Yeah. Clapton wasn't better than Hendrix. Hendrix wasn't better than Clapton. Um, I got another one here that I really, really liked. John Packer is his name, our, our contributor here from Twitter. John Packer said, Hugh Masekela described how you helped him move out of addiction, and how that transformed his life. How did he find you? Cass. Cass Elliot. Same person who introduced me to, to Graham and one of my best friends in the world. A truly wonderful woman. Yeah. She introduced me to Hugh, and he and I, and she used to hang out together a lot. Hugh was a very talented guy. He played on Rock and Roll Star. That's his trumpet on Rock and Roll Star. I don't want you to answer these questions, but I just want to read them to you because they're so interesting to me. Jeffrey Parrish says, if you had six fingers instead of four, what would we hear from your guitar? Jeffrey Parrish used to be the captain on my boat. Is this this somebody you know? Oh, I know him very well. Is this somebody you know? He's one of my best friends. If you have six fingers on your hand rather than four, what would we hear from your guitar? Clapton. (laughs) (laughs) Is he somebody you admire? Oh, hell yes. But more than his musicianship, I admire his courage. What happened to him mm-hmm. would have put me back yep. on top. Good one, and good one, he living. didn't go. Yeah. He stayed oh. sober. Oh. In the face of that, my God, man. Yeah. That's courage. He's a very brave guy. And, you know, most people just have never really looked at it and thought about what it must have taken from him. But I admire his courage as much as I ad- admire his guitar playing. And I think he's an even better singer than he is a guitar player. Three last questions. Gloria Bernstein, who's a friend of mine, Gloria Bernstein, wants to know, what's your favorite movie of your dad's? High Noon. High Noon. But the one they got the Academy Award for uh, is also a stunner. It's called Taboo, and it was a black and white, silent movie. It's that far back. You ever, you ever visit him on the set? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of times. Yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to do your job, man. I was like, I'm so glad you didn't. I'm so glad, I'm so glad didn't you didn't. Do. Did. It worked out well for all of us. Oh well, you know how for it society. is. Society, <laughs> it's not easy, man. For every part in in film and TV, there's a thousand people trying. One last question from me is: uh, What are five albums you could never do without? Joni's Blue, Asia, Steely Dan, my favorite band. Uh, Sad that he died. Not uh, good. I'm friends with Donald, and, and though, and I got to give two to Steely Dan, Gaucho, uh, Peppers, Sergeant Peppers, right. loved it. A classical piece called "Theme from Thomas Tallis." Very fun, Williams. Yeah, uh, you know about that. I'm I'm the I'm the announcer for the New York Philharmonic here on public radio. I love that. How is your health, and what recommendations do you have to people, especially people in your business, to take better care of their health? I think a lot about that now, what I might have done. I think, you know, my health has always been a a very serious issue. Uh, I had hepatitis C. I had to have a liver transplant. Mm -hmm. I spent 72 days in the hospital at UCLA before they saved my life. Uh, It was really pretty pretty terrible. I've been a diabetic for for 30 years, uh, at least. My doctor, who is a crusty old guy at uh, UCLA named uh, Gary Gitnick, said, you got to do better with this diabetes. Okay, Gary, thank you. How do I do that? He said, eat less food. I said, oh, Gary, thanks. It's so (laughs) simple. Oh, wow. You cleared it right up for me. You were so kind, you asshole. (laughs) Eat less food. I mean it. 
you're eating too much. Turns out he's right. Yeah. There's a delay period between when you're actually full and when you feel full. It's about 20 minutes. Right. And you keep eating because it tastes good. So what I do is I order a regular meal. I don't order sugar, but I order a pretty regular meal. And then I eat half of it. And I went from 240 to 177. Mm. And I've been here for two years. Mm. Do you campaign for people for candidates ever anymore? I'm very reticent about it because they, they turn on you. I've been campaigning for a friend of mine named Dana Steele uh, down in Texas. She's running Where's for— home for you now? You live where? Uh, Santa Inez, by, uh, by Santa Barbara. Right. Uh, I've been campaigning for Dana because she's a friend, and I know she's an honorable person, and she wants, she's running for Congress in the 36th District in uh, Texas, and I think she might win, even though she, it's an uphill battle. Yeah, I do sometimes if I know the character of the person. I'd love to do something with you. That'd be fun. I'd love it too, man. Yeah, out in LA, I'll come I, to LA. You know, we got to give it everything we've got. I love this country, man. Yeah. I'm not giving up. I am not going to roll over and put my paws in here. I am going to keep fighting until I am dead. The inexhaustible creative engine that is David Crosby. He actually worked in film recently. He and his son James wrote a song for the documentary Little Pink House about the human story behind the Supreme Court's Kelo decision, where a town tried to bulldoze a woman's Little Pink House to make room for commercial development. They put it in the movie, and they're trying to see if they can qualify us for an Academy Award, which I would, of course, love. I can put it next to my dad's. David Crosby. He chose the music for today's program, and there's both joy and pain in it. I'm Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.